0: I'm Akiva Fox, and this is Clear Shakespeare, the read-along Shakespeare podcast. Welcome to part five of Clear Shakespeare Midsummer Night's Dream. I hope you're enjoying this series and all of Clear Shakespeare's podcasts. If you are, please take a second and go to clearshakespeare.com support. I'd very much appreciate it if you could kick in a few bucks to make this all possible. You can also subscribe to this podcast on iTunes and leave a review if you think it's particularly awesome. I do, but then I run it. Okay, grab your copy of A Midsummer Night's Dream, turn to Act 4, Scene 1, and we'll begin. So remember the last time we saw Titania and Bottom? She was telling her fairies to tie him up and bring him to her bower? Well, now we're at her bower. And one thing that's sort of important here is that the action is more or less continuous. The lovers are still asleep on the stage, and they're about to wake up any second, released from the spell. But Titania is still very much under this spell. She has yet to be released from it, so she's the one thread that's still not tied up. Unless, of course, you count the guy with the donkey head. But we'll get to him. So Titania says to Bottom, "'Come, sit thee down upon this flowery bed, while I thy amiable cheeks do coy, and stick musk roses in thy sleek, smooth head, and kiss thy fair, large ears, my gentle joy.' So she's in the process of sitting him down as this scene begins. While I thy amiable cheeks. Amiable for us is usually pleasant, but remember it comes from the same word for love. So here it means lovable or even desirable. And what is she going to do? She's going to coy his cheeks. Old timey verb. It means to stroke or caress. And you can kind of get that from the context. And she says she's going to stick musk roses in his sleek smooth head. Remember how Oberon was talking about her bower towards the beginning of the play? And he mentioned these musk roses in it. It's this very strong smelling flower. And you can see how consciously poetic this moment is too. Sleek, smooth, those repeated S sounds and those long vowel sounds. It really draws it out. So she's going to stick roses in his head, in other words, in the hair of his head, and kiss thy fair, large ears. Fair here means beautiful. So there's a nice dissonance between a donkey ears and what she believes them to be. So after all this long, languid poetry in rhyme, what Bottom says is, Where's Peas Blossom? It's a real wet blanket, because he's not really interested in her love at all. So it's bad enough she's fallen in love with a half-donkey man, but he doesn't really care that much about her. Love, right? All he cares about is his stuff. Peas Blossom jumps up and says, Ready. Peas Blossom is probably pretty sick of this by now. And Bottom commands, Scratch my head, Peas Blossom. Where's Monsieur Cobweb? Remember that title, Monsieur, has indications of sort of fanciness or general Frenchness. It indicates that Cobweb is a gentleman, at least in Bottom's eyes. And Cobweb jumps up and says, Ready. And Bottom continues, Monsieur Cobweb, good monsieur, get you your weapons in your hand, and kill me a red hipped humblebee on top of a thistle, and good monsieur, bring me the honey bag. Remember this is what Titania commanded them to do for him last time? We don't know if they've done it yet, but he wants it now. And see how overt the violence is here? Get your weapons in your hand and kill me a red hipped humblebee, humblebee as in Bumblebee on the top of a thistle, you know, one of those big purple flowers where bees maybe hang out looking for nectar. And good monsieur, bring me the honey bag. Remember the honey bag, the so-called first stomach or honey stomach that the bee uses to store nectar on its way back to the hive so it doesn't digest it on the way back from the field? Again, an internal organ, so you have to kill the honey bee, rip it open, and take out the honey bag. But Bottom gets even more specific with his instructions. He says, do not fret yourself too much in the action, monsieur. And good monsieur, have a care the honey bag break not. I would be loath to have you overflown with a honey bag, Signor. So don't fret yourself. Fret can mean worry or it can mean strain yourself. Too much in the action. In other words, the acting of my command. And he calls him monsieur a few more times, really ramming that home. Because it also reflects back on what an important person Bottom thinks he is now, that he can call people monsieur. And he says, have a care. In other words, be careful that the honey bag break not, that it doesn't break. Why? I would be loath to have you overflown with a honey bag. In other words, flooded or covered with the contents of the honey bag. He doesn't want that. Plus, he really wants the nectar for himself. And he ends by calling him Signor, which is another kind of indication of fanciness or of gentlemanliness. Here, it's Italian as opposed to French, but both of those senses were important people that I'm now hanging out with. And Cobweb goes off to do some murder, and Bottom calls out, Where's Monsieur Mustard Seed? And Mustard Seed pops up and says, Ready? And Bottom says... Give me your neef, Monsieur Mustard Seed. Cool sounding word, neef. It just means fist or hand. So it's kind of a formal gesture, like between important people. He says, pray you, leave your courtesy, good monsieur. Pray you means I beg you or I ask you. And then leave your courtesy. Leave means to stop. And courtesy, we've seen this before. It can mean sort of general over polite behavior, but it can also mean curtsying, like bowing. So stop bowing to me. I'm, I'm not that important and Mustard seed maybe takes his hand and says what's your will a will here is a wish or a want so what do you want and bottom says nothing good monsieur but to help cavalry cobweb to scratch so he got all this formality worked up and now there isn't really anything he wants from cobweb he says no actually there isn't anything i want Except that you help Cavalry Cobweb, which is a great little title. It comes from the Italian word cavaliere, which means cavalier, like a gallant gentleman. But you also get that nice alliteration of Cavalry Cobweb. Help him to scratch. Maybe this is something he's had them do before. Remember, at this point, Cobweb has gone off to kill honeybees. Why does he want to be scratched? He says, I must to the barbers, monsieur, for methinks thinks I am marvelous hairy about the face. I must here means I must go to the barbers. For methinks, methinks means it seems to me I am marvelous hairy about the face. Marvelous is short for marvelously, as in extremely hairy about the face. Remember, Bottom still has no idea that he is a donkey. He just thinks his beard is bothering him. But he says, and I am such a tender ass, if my hair do but tickle me, I must scratch. Another one of those ironic terms. Tender meaning sensitive. And ass, obviously, is a donkey, but here it means something like idiot. Like, I'm such a sensitive, stupid idiot. If my hair just tickles me a little bit, I have to scratch it. Irony has no effect whatsoever on this guy bottom. And Titania, as everyone in love does, ignores all these terrible things about the person she loves. And says, what, will thou hear some music, my sweet love? Notice she's back in verse again after he spent all this time in kind of lower class prose. And she calls him my sweet love which as we have now seen he is nothing of the kind so maybe he wants to hear some music she's desperate to please him in any way she can and bottom responds i have a reasonable good ear in music reasonable being sort of short for reasonably like a pretty good ear for music let's have the tongues and the bones i don't think this is the kind of music she was thinking about she was probably thinking about beautiful ethereal played by the spheres kind of music and he immediately suggests these two percussion instruments the tongs, which are a piece of metal you hit, sort of like the triangle, and the bones, which were these actual animal bones that you clacked in the hand. The bones, by the way, are actually a very important instrument in American music later on. Anyway, whatever beautiful music she's thinking of, he's thinking of clickety-clackety kind of music. But she's still desperate to please him, and she says, Or say, sweet love, what thou desirest to eat. There's those words, sweet love, again, because that contrast between what he actually is and how she perceives him is incredibly important here. So Shakespeare keeps hitting that. Say what you desire to eat. Like, maybe if music won't work, maybe food. And he says, truly, a peck of provender. Again, right back in prose after her beautiful poetry. So what delicious food does he want? A peck, as in Peter Piper? It's a quarter of a bushel. It's just a measure of grain, usually. And provender is like livestock feed. It's what you would give a donkey. Though it sounds cooler because of that double P sound, peck and provender. It's much harsher than the sounds that she's been using. He says, I could munch your good dry oats. The yore here isn't literally hers, it just means some. And again, dry oats are what you feed to a horse or a donkey. And even more, he says, methinks I have a great desire to a bottle of hay. Methinks meaning it seems to me, not just I think. I have a great desire to a bottle of hay. Which sounds pretty funny for us, like you could drink hay, but actually bottle was a way to refer to a bundle. And he's taking his cue right from her language. She said, What do you desire to eat? And he says, I have a great desire for a bottle of hay. And he gets carried away with that hay. Good hay. Sweet hay hath no fellow. Fellow here is something like no equal. Like, there's nothing as good as good sweet hay. Again, all he wants right now is horse food, donkey food. So she suggests something that he might like more. She says, I have a venturous fairy that shall seek the squirrel's hoard and fetch thee new nuts. So she's trying to steer him away from the worst parts of himself, the dunkiest parts, towards more beautiful stuff. I have a venturous fairy, in other words, adventurous or a bold fairy, that shall seek... In other words, seek out, find the squirrel's hoard, which is that hidden store of food that the squirrel keeps over the winter, and fetch thee new nuts. New here just meaning fresh, with the added advantage of the double N sound. But yeah, that's a delicious thing. And again, she's back in poetry, and he slams right back into prose. I'd rather have a handful or two of dried peas again he doesn't want her delicious food he wants his donkey food so after this back and forth between her ideal version of him and the real version of him he says but i pray you let none of your people stir me i have an exposition of sleep come upon me i pray you in other words i ask or i beg of you let none of your people stir me stir here means to bother or move or touch or in this case wake up why because i have an exposition of sleep come upon me uh that's not a real thing It's not like a fair where you can demonstrate your sleep. He probably means something like a disposition to sleep, like an inclination to fall asleep. But instead of saying disposition, he says exposition. It's another one of these mix-ups that his language always turns into. But that's fine. She agrees with this one. She says, sleep thou and I will wind thee in my arms. That's a beautiful image and she's going to expand on it soon. And she turns to the fairies and says, fairies begone, and be always away. This can be in our modern sense of always, like forever, or it can be something more like be away in every possible way. But in any event, it means stay away from us. We want some alone time. So she talked about winding him in her arms and now she goes on and says, so doth the woodbine the sweet honeysuckle gently entwist. She says so, which means in just exactly this way that I'm winding him in my arms, doth the woodbine, which is a kind of vine, the sweet honeysuckle gently entwist. Sweet here because it's sweet smelling. If you've been probably in the South in particular, in summer you know what honeysuckle smells like. It's everywhere. It gently entwists. So this one vine, the woodbine, twists around the honeysuckle. This can be a little confusing because sometimes woodbine can refer honeysuckle itself but what Shakespeare's probably talking about here is this vine called a bindweed which twists up the honeysuckle and sort of lives symbiotically with it so that's how much she wants to be twisted up with him as closely as the honeysuckle and the woodbine are twisted up and then there's another example. She says, the female ivy sow in rings the barky fingers of the elm. There's that word "so" again, which means in the way I'm doing. The female ivy in rings, which here means to circle, just like a ring circles a finger. That's how the female ivy twists around the barky fingers of the elm. Barky is an incredible adjective to choose here, because obviously it's an elm tree. It has bark on it, but here its fingers, its branches are barky. And the elm is a particular tree that is usually seen as a sign of strength. There's something manly about the elm tree. Don't ask me what. So she's comparing the way she's twisting around bottom to the way that the ivy twists around the branches of an elm tree. Of course, there's something kind of sinister about this too, because ivy tends to suck the life out of trees. And she concludes this beautiful patch of totally misapplied poetry with, Oh, how I love thee, how I dote on thee. So first she says she loves him, and she follows that by expanding it, not just love, She dotes on him. It's that word that Oberon used to talk about how she was going to fall in love with his monster. It means to love obsessively, to become infatuated with. So she's built to this crescendo of poetry, and then they fall asleep. And in comes Puck meeting Oberon. So there's two options. One, you can have Oberon on stage the whole time watching this. You can have him enter later on. You can have him enter now and kind of meet up with Puck now and see her. But in any event, we know that Puck is just arriving here for the first time. And Oberon says to him, Welcome, good Robin. Seest thou this sweet sight? This is definitely an ironic use of sweet. Here he probably means something like pleasing to himself, because this is what he wanted for her. But it's also ironic in that it is a quote-unquote sweet pairing of the Queen of the Fairies and a donkey-headed guy. And there's a kind of hissing that comes on with all these S sounds. Ceased. Sweet. Sight. He becomes sort of a monster too in this. There's also those ideas of seeing and sight coming back again. But he's not monster for long. He says her dotage now i do begin to pity remember she just said that she doted on bottom well now oberon says her dotage in other words her infatuation or obsessive loving though dotage can also mean something like insanity he says i begin to pity it now like i was enjoying this for a while but now it's getting kind of weird and he goes on to explain he says for meeting her of late behind the wood, seeking sweet favors for this hateful fool. I did upbraid her and fall out with her. So meeting her of late, of late just meaning recently, probably a few minutes ago, I met her behind the wood. What was she doing? She was seeking sweet favors. Favors are gifts, but maybe specifically flowers. Sweet can be pleasing, as in the way he just used it, or it can mean sweet smelling, like beautiful smelling flowers. Why was she gathering them? For this hateful fool. Hateful here means repulsive, disgusting to look at. So she was in the back of the woods gathering flowers, which is something she could probably have one of her fairies do for her. That's how devoted to bottom she is. And then look at what he says he did. I did upbraid her. Upbraid means to scold or yell at and fall out with her. So he yelled at her again. Notice, by the way, that this is for something that he made her do. This is an ugly, ugly version of love. So why did he yell at her? For she his hairy temples then had rounded with coronet of fresh and fragrant flowers. So she had rounded, which means to surround or encircle his hairy temples, with coronet of fresh and fragrant flowers. A coronet is a crown, or like a wreath that goes around someone's head. And then try saying this five times fast, fresh and fragrant flowers. I'm surprised it isn't flowers. So you can definitely hear all those repeated F sounds. He's disgusted by this, but by this thing he made her do. And he goes on, And that same dew, which sometime on the buds was wont to swell like round and orient pearls, stood now within the pretty flower its eyes, like tears that did their own disgrace bewail. So the very same dew, which sometime on the buds, sometime here not meaning occasionally, it means something like previously or once. Usually it was wont, meaning it was used to or accustomed to, swelling like round and orient pearls on the buds. Orient means lustrous or gleaming. Literally, it refers to eastern. They called the west the occident and the east the orient. But here it means shining. So usually this dew was sitting like pearls on the buds. But now, he says, the dew stood within the pretty floweret's eyes. Flowerets are just little flowers. And it's an incredibly weird and singular image inside the eyes of these flowers, presumably the center. But considering how important that word eyes is in this play, it's not an accident. So instead of being pearls, now they're like tears in the eyes of these flowers. Tears that did their own disgrace bewail. Bewail means to cry for, or protest, or mourn at their own disgrace. What are they disgraced by? Well, maybe they're disgraced at being used for this nonsense plan. That they have to be given to this idiot half-donkey guy. So it's as though the flowers themselves are crying at this. And he goes on, and get this. When I had at my pleasure taunted her, and she in mild terms begged my patience, I then did ask of her her changeling child, Which straight she gave me, and her fairy sent, to bear him to my bower in fairyland. You, 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 you. So when I had it my pleasure, pleasure here being his desire or his whim, as much as he wanted, he's taunted her, and she in mild terms, terms here literally being words or phrasing, but mild, subservient terms, begged my patience my patience here is she begged him to compose himself, to stop being angry at her. So he enjoyed taunting her. She had to beg him to stop yelling. And at the end of all that, he asked of her, in other words, from her, her changeling child. Remember what they were arguing about in the first place, this little Indian boy that was switched out for a fairy? Well, now he asks her for it. And straight, she gave me, straight here meaning at once or straight away, right away. And her fairy sent, some fairy that works for her, she sent it to bear him, which means to carry him. To my bower, oh, Oberon has a bower too, which is that name for a flowery glade or a bedroom, or in the fairy case, kind of both. It's where they hang out for sleep times. So to take it to his bower in fairyland, that kind of parallel universe they live in. So she commands one of her underlings to give him the kid. And there's something very harsh about those double B sounds, bear him to my bower. Oh my god, everything about this sentence is creepy as hell. Because this whole plan has been about punishing her and getting what he wanted in the first place. It's debasing and it's gross. This isn't the restoration of good relations here. This is him winning. And winning mean. And this, ladies and gentlemen, is love. And after that he says, And now I have the boy. I will undo this hateful imperfection of her eyes so now that i have this changeling boy which i wanted the whole time i will undo this hateful imperfection hateful meaning repulsive and that phrase imperfection of her eyes is incredibly charged the imperfection obviously is that she falls in love with bottom it may as much be that she wasn't loving him any more So it's not a fault of her eyes, it's an imperfection of her eyes. So he's going to handle that, and then he gives a job to Puck. He says, And gentle Puck, take this transformed scalp from off the head of this Athenian swain, that he, awaking when the other do, may all to Athens back again repair, and think no more of this night's accidents, but as the fierce vexation of a dream. So take this transformed scalp, there's that word transformed again, from off the head of this Athenian swain, swain is just kind of a dude, especially like a lower-class yokel type, that he, so that he, awaking when the other do, the other here are the other Athenians, may all to Athens back again repair. Repair not like carpentry. It means go back again or return. So he wants Bottom to wake up when all the other ones do so that they can all go back to Athens together. And what does Oberon want in the end? And think no more of this night's accidents, but as the fierce vexation of a dream. So accidents here means literally events. There's some sense of mistakes in the way we would use it now, but it's more like straight events. So they shouldn't think anything more of it than that it was the fierce vexation of a dream. Fierce here means lively or wild. And vexation means like turmoil or agitation. The kind of craziness that shows up in a dream. Remember in the last scene when he was giving instructions to Puck about what to do with the lovers? He talked about it seeming like a dream and fruitless vision. It's the same idea here. All dreams all the time. Again, the images of love as a dream with all the insanity that comes along with it. So that's what he wants Puck to do with Bottom. But he says... But first, I will release the fairy queen. And so he takes the antidote and he puts it on her eyes and he says, Be as thou wast wont to be, see as thou wast wont to see. So that fairy meter and rhyme are back again because he's doing magic. And there are two phrases here. First, be as thou wast wont to be. In other words, be the way you were accustomed to being before all this. And then, see as thou wast wont to see. There's that idea of seeing again. He wants her to see the way she used to see because something was wrong with her eyes when he put that spell on them. And he continues, Diane's bud or Cupid's flower hath such force and blessed power. So Diane's bud, Diane or Diana is the goddess of chastity. So her bud here is the flower that reverses the spell or herb as he calls it sometimes. So Diana's flower or Cupid's flower, remember that love and idleness flower that did the first spell that made people fall in love? Well, that's Cupid's flower. So Diane's bud hath such force and blessed power over Cupid's flower. Force here just means power or ability to work. And what he's saying is that this flower of chastity, the ability to undo love, is more powerful than the flower that caused love. So it's something we've seen a lot of in this play, this kind of war between Diana and Cupid, between chastity and sexy times. And the implication is that the chastity side wins. In part, it's probably a reference to Queen Elizabeth. But I don't know that the play totally believes that. So the spell is lifted with this new flower, and he leans down to her and says, Now, my Titania, wake you, my sweet queen. So we're back in iambic pentameter after that brief detour into spell-making fairy meter. And he's speaking in a much sweeter way. A, it rhymes. B, it has much longer syllables. Sweet, queen. He's setting himself up to be the good guy here. And she wakes up and looks at him and says, my Oberon, what visions have I seen? So she's been dreaming too, or it seemed to her like a dream, which is exactly what he wanted. And what was her dream? She says, methought I was enamored of an ass. Methought it seemed to me I was enamored of, in other words, I was in love with, an ass, a donkey. It seemed like a dream to her. And Oberon, always one to rub it in, says, there lies your love. And you see how he stresses that first syllable, there lies your love. He's really grinding the heel in here. And also that double L of lies and love. And she's shocked. She jumps right into the middle of his verse line and says, how came these things to pass? Come to pass means to happen or to occur. She is justifiably freaked out. She goes on, oh, how mine eyes do loathe his visage now. Visage just means face or appearance. She doesn't say I loathe his visage. She says, my eyes loathe his visage. Her eyes have been transformed. And instead of Oberon saying, well, it's a funny story. Let me explain everything. He says, silence a while. Shut up for a second, baby. Let me handle this. That dude is cold. And he turns to Puck and says, Robin, take off his head. And he has a job for her, too. He says, Titania, music call. So call for that magical music of yours. And strike more dead than common sleep of all these five, the sense. So every time we've heard music before, it's been to put someone to sleep. And that's what it's for here, too. Now this is a very, very twisty sentence, so we'll untangle it a little bit. Strike more dead than common sleep, the sense of all these five. The sense here is like the senses or perception or their awareness of all these five. In other words, the four lovers in Bottom who are lying asleep on the ground. Well, he wants music that's going to make them more dead than common sleep. Not literally dead, but again, there's that idea in the play of sleep and death as being related because they look very similar. And Oberon wants them extra sleep, almost more like death. I mean, I don't really know what the problem is. They're already asleep, but he wants them really asleep. As though this is kind of a special deep sleep that when they come out of it, everything will be restored. And Titania does exactly what he asks for. She says, music, ho, music such as charmeth sleep. Ho here is just like a little particle meaning like, hey, you over there. Music such as the kind of music that charmeth sleep. Charmeth here means causes, especially by magic. Man, this Titania is so different than the one we saw at the beginning of the play, when she was just rolling over him. Smarter than him, more willful than him. It's almost like the taming of the shrew here. He's really flattened her out. And Puck does his magic and takes that donkey head off of Bottom and says, Now when thou wakest, with thine own fool's eyes peep peep in addition to rhyming with the word sleep is a really fun word choice it just means look but it sounds so much more interesting and again the spell is that he's going to look with his own eyes even if they're a fool's eyes instead of the donkey's eyes he's been using remember he wasn't under that spell he was just under the donkey's spell so he never fell in love with anybody and oberon gives the command sound music even though titania kind of technically already gave that command and the music starts up and he says come my queen take hands with me and rock the ground whereon these sleepers be So, take hands with me, in other words, join hands with me, and rock the ground. This is a beautiful image, almost like you're rocking babies to sleep. Not like rock and roll, but it's as though the forest becomes one giant hammock or cradle for them. I'd like to see somebody pull that off in production. So, do they do a spell? Do they dance? It's a chance for some real magic, and people don't usually do much with it. So after they do that rocking, Oberon says to her, Now thou and I are new in amity, and will tomorrow midnight solemnly dance in Duke Theseus' house triumphantly, and bless it to all fair prosperity. So you and I are new in amity. It means we're newly friendly again, I guess because he just took off a terrible abusive spell he just put on her. I guess they're friendly is one way to put it. And will tomorrow midnight solemnly... Okay, remember, at the beginning of this play, we were four days away from the wedding. Now it seems like we're only one day from the wedding. Have they really been in the woods that long? The time does not check out beautifully in this play. Solemnly here doesn't mean seriously in our modern sense. It means ceremoniously, as in solemnizing a marriage. So tomorrow at midnight, we'll solemnly dance in Duke Theseus' house triumphantly. Triumphantly here means something like as in a great celebration or a march or a pageant, because a triumph was an old-timey processional you would have through town to celebrate some victory. So tomorrow at midnight, we're going to dance in the house and bless it to all fair prosperity. We'll bless it that it will have all fair prosperity, which means future success, good luck, maybe even babies. There shall the pairs of faithful lovers be wedded with Theseus, all in jollity. Oh, this is new information. These pairs of faithful lovers, even though faithful is not necessarily how I would describe them, they're going to be wedded with Theseus, alongside him, all in jollity. Jollity means happiness or cheer. But there's also a strong kind of undercurrent of sexual pleasure here. Remember, these fairies are very much associated with baby making. I would just like to point out, before we go any further, that was eight, count them eight rhymes in a row. And you have this incredible effect of accruing. Me, be, amity, solemnly, triumphantly, prosperity, be, jollity. It really builds to a finish. But Puck has an important update. He says, fairy king, attend and mark attend means listen and mark means to pay attention or take notice probably with your eyes i do hear the morning lark remember the lark is the bird that sort of sings most energetically first thing in the morning also very important in romeo and juliet in any event it's the signal that morning is almost here which means it's time for them to go so oberon turns to her and says Then my queen in silence sad trip we after night's shade silence sad is a beautiful phrase but not sad in our modern sense of upset here it means serious or solemn so solemn doesn't mean what it used to mean and sad now means solemn it's all very confusing shakespeare uses this same phrase sad silence in twelfth night So we're going to be very quiet and serious and we're going to trip after trip means to skip or run not to fall down after night's shade shade is a shadow or more specifically a spirit or a ghost and which ghost are they following the ghost of night as though night is a ghost escaping from the day and they're going to follow after night another thing to keep in mind is that shade and sad probably used to rhyme in shakespeare's day sorry english not helping by the way did you notice that we're back in that fairy meter again we've switched back to those weird short lines He goes on, we the globe can compass soon, swifter than the wandering moon. So we can compass, which means to circle or orbit, almost like the word encompass, the globe, soon. Not very soon from now, but more like quickly or in very little time. There's a lot in this play about how fairies can run around the world very fast. And how fast? Swifter than the wandering moon. Remember Puck talked about how he could travel swifter than the moon's sphere? Well, it's the same idea. Why is the moon wandering? Because it moves on its own. Remember that old-timey astronomy where all the stars were sort of fixed in this giant crystal sphere? Well, the moon and the planets were in their own crystal spheres, so they moved at a different pace than the stars. So that's why wandering. But we can go around the Earth faster than the moon can. And Titania finally gets to speak again. She says, come, my lord, and in our flight, tell me how it came this night that I sleeping here was found with these mortals on the ground. So in our flight, flight here can mean flying, as in flying around the world, or it can mean fleeing, as in running away from day. So as we're flying, tell me how it came, how it happened, how it came to pass this night that I was found here sleeping with these mortals on the ground. Mortals is very much a derogatory term that the fairies use in this play. She's still pretty flummoxed how she was found hanging out with all these lower people. I don't know about you, but I suspect that Oberon probably isn't going to tell her or he's going to make something up. Because he isn't going to be like, Oh hey, funny story, so uh, I had you put under a spell and uh, fall in love with a monster. But we're good now, right? Again, everything is back to the appearance of happiness, but something is still desperately wrong with this relationship. It's based on one member manipulating the other totally and abusing them. So they leave, and the sun is just starting to come up. And this is really important because you remember the fairies are specifically creatures of the night. That is their realm. And so much about this play is built on the setting sun and the rising sun. There's a lot of references to it. And also the play cycles through these night times and day times. So going into the forest is as much about going into the night and coming back into the day as it is about just going into this green world, as they call it. And right on time, along with the dawn, comes the people of the dawn, which is Theseus and Hippolyta. Remember those nice people from the framing device at the beginning of the play? Well, they're back. And not just them, but basically the entire court is with them, the whole hunting party. And that includes Aegeus, Hermia's father, whom you may remember from the beginning of the play, kicked off the action. So what are they doing here? Let's let Theseus explain. He says, go, one of you, find out the forester find out in other words go get the forester which is this forest keeper the guy who works for the royal person who owns the forest kind of taking care of the lands and why does he want to see the forester for now our observation is performed and since we have the voward of the day my love shall hear the music of my hounds our observation is performed. What's this observation? Well, it's not like they're doing science here. It's more like our word observance. It's those sort of pagan fertility rituals, the rites of May that Lysander mentioned back in act one, scene one. And again, in this play is pretty much conflated with the midsummer rituals. So they went and they did that ritual. And since we have the Voward of the day, which is just another way of saying that word vanguard, and vanguard is a military term. It means literally the front lines of an attacking army, which is to say they're here right at the beginning of the day. We're at the front of the armies of the day. Remember the fairy king and queen swept out following night? Well, now the human king and queen sweep in at the beginning of the day. This is the new regime. So since we're here first thing in the morning, he says, My love, in other words, Hippolyta, the person he loves, shall hear the music of my hounds. His hounds here are his hunting dogs, but that's a beautiful expression, the music of his hounds. Literally, it's just they're like barking voices on the hunt. But to him, that's music. And he gives a command, uncoupled in the western valley, let them go uncouple means to unleash and specifically to unleash pairs of dogs so set them to run off in the western valley to go hunting so he says uncouple let them go and he gives one more command dispatch i say and find the forester dispatch means to carry something out quickly go let's go why are you standing around go find the forester that forest keeper who he asked for at the beginning so his speech comes full circle it starts with find out the forester and it ends with find the forester so the poor servant goes off to release the hounds And he turns to Hippolyta and says, We will, fair queen, up to the mountain's top and mark the musical confusion of hounds and echo in conjunction. So we will, in other words, we will go up to the mountain's top and mark the musical confusion. Mark here means pay attention to or notice. And then this is a beautiful phrase, musical confusion. There's that idea of music again and here it's a musical confusion like a disorder or a commotion you know the sound you get when a lot of dogs are all barking at the same time but to him it's musical of hounds and echo in conjunction in conjunction meaning at the same time or overlapping because remember he's letting them out in the western valley so the sound the dogs make is going to echo around the valley and theseus and hippolyta are going to be up at the top of the mountain listening to the echo and the hounds barking at the same time so it's like a really avant-garde piece of music and now for a super weird digression hippolytus says i was with hercules and cadmus once when in a wood of crete they bathed the bear with hounds of sparta so hercules and cadmus so hercules we know this great greek mythological hero one of his labors remember was to bring back hippolytus girdle from the land of the amazons so evidently they hung out for a while and Cadmus, who, according to Greek myth, was the founder of the city of Thebes. In none of those myths does he have anything to do with Hercules or Hippolyta. Shakespeare's just naming guys he knows and throwing them in the myth together. So we were all hanging out when in a wood of Crete, Crete being this great island civilization off the southeastern coast of Greece. So they were hunting in Crete, they bade the bear. And bade here means when you corner an animal you're hunting with barking dogs. This is the last moment before the hunters circle around and kill it. So in this case, they bayed the bear with hounds of Sparta. It's really emphatic when you hear the double B sound of bayed and bear. And these are Spartan hounds. Just like the soldiers of Sparta that you probably know from terrible movies, the Spartan hunting dogs were bred specifically for hunting, and they were sort of famously skilled. And she goes on, Never did I hear such gallant chiding. Or besides the groves, the skies, the fountains, every region near seemed all one mutual cry. Never did I hear, never before did I hear such gallant chiding. Chiding, remember, here means yelling or angry noise, or in this case, barking. But she says it was gallant chiding, splendid or outstanding yelling. It's kind of a cool oxymoron. Why? For, she says, besides the groves, besides just the woods that they were hunting in, the skies, the fountains, and fountains here are like wild springs in the woods, Every region near, every area near us, seemed all one mutual cry. Mutual here means, like, omnipresent, being everywhere. And cry is the sound of the dogs, that barking or baying. So it was as though the dog's barking sound was coming from everywhere. And she finishes, I never heard so musical a discord, such sweet thunder. Remember he said musical confusion? Well, here she says musical discord. Discord being, like, chaotic, dissonant music. Such sweet thunder. Sweet here as in beautiful sounding but it's not something you necessarily associate with thunder. So she's picking up on his idea of musical confusion with this story of her own. So she's like, you think your dogs sound good? Let me tell you about these other better dogs. But Theseus has an answer for that. He says, my hounds are bred out of the Spartan kind, so flued, so sanded, and their heads are hung with ears that sweep away the morning dew, crook-kneed and dew-lapped like Thessalian bulls, slow in pursuit, but matched in mouth like bells, each under each. Okay, so here is a long description of puppy faces. I would just like to point out, at the climactic moment of his play, Shakespeare takes a three minute break to describe puppy faces. Every time someone tells you Shakespeare is the greatest playwright who ever lived, I want to be like, three minute discussion of puppy faces. This probably also explains why this sequence is almost always cut. Anyway, so what is he saying? My hounds are bred out of the Spartan kind. Kind here means breed or family. It's the same breed of Spartan dog that Hercules and Cadmus used. So flued, so sanded. These are very specific dog words. Flues are those big hangy hound cheeks and lips that drag on the ground. And sanded means they're the color of sand. So just like those Spartan dogs, they have the same flues and they're the same sandy colors. And just like them, their heads are hung with ears that sweep away the morning dew. That's actually very pretty. They have these long, draggy ears that sweep away the dew in the morning. And what else are they? They're crookneed. Any of you who has a basset hound at home Go look at their knees. A lot of hounds are actually built with sort of crooked knees to better support their weight because they're sort of oddly built. It's just one of the features of being very low to the ground, which makes sense if your job is to smell things. And dewlapped like Thessalian bulls. Well, this is a nice echo of that word dew we just saw earlier, but a dewlap is like the skin that hangs under your throat. Remember when Puck was telling his story at the beginning of the play about the old gossip woman? She was also dewlap, she had those skin folds. Like Thessalian bulls. So sometimes you'll see a bull that has those same skin flaps hanging down. It just means they're from the Greek region of Thessaly. And what's the deal with the Thessalian bulls? Well, supposedly during the religious games in Thessaly, the young men in this area used to jump and wrestle bulls. It was kind of like early rodeo, but that's how he's describing his dogs. So he says they're slow in pursuit, maybe because they're crook-kneed. They're not the fastest dogs to pursue the animal, but he says they're matched in mouth like bells, each under each. This is a cool image. Matched in mouth, so you can hear the double M sound. What does this mean? Well, the mouth actually is the voice, or that baying sound. And their voices are like musical bells, each under each, i.e. each note of their voices sort of corresponds harmoniously to the others, almost like a bell choir that covers the whole musical scale. There's also a really cool sound echo here, the bulls, and then the next line, the bells. So it's a speech about music, but there's also some music in the language. So it's as though he has his own bell choir of hunting dogs. He goes on, a cry more tunable was never hollowed to nor cheered with horn in crete in sparta nor in thessaly so a cry which here probably refers to the collective noise that the pack of dogs makes but a cry can also be a pack of dogs it can be another name for that so a cry more tunable tunable here means musical or melodious or harmonious to so a more harmonious sound was never hollowed to. You may have seen that fox hunters will yell out the sound halloo when they see the fox running out into the open. So that's why these dogs would be hallooed to when they get that prey animal out into the open for the hunters. Nor cheered with horn. So it was the most musical sound that was ever hallooed to and also the most musical sound that was ever cheered with horn because the lead huntsman in a fox hunt in particular uses a horn to communicate both with the dogs and with the other hunters. And he claims it's never been better in Crete, which she talked about, in Sparta, where the dogs come from, nor in Thessaly, which they were also talking about. So he basically names all these famous places and says, no, these Athenian dogs are the best. But he says, judge when you hear. Like, judge for yourself when you hear the dogs. And just before we're finally going to get all this dog noise, which we've heard so much about, big interruption. He says, but soft, what nymphs are these? Soft is an interjection. It can mean wait or look over there or listen. What nymphs are these? Remember these beautiful nature spirits from Greek mythology? The women in the play get called nymphs a lot. But here they actually seem like nymphs because they are beautiful young people asleep in the woods. And Aegeus goes over to investigate and he says, my lord, this is my daughter here asleep. And this Lysander, this Demetrius is, this Helena, old Nedar's Helena. So he finds his daughter Hermia and this, he says, is Lysander. This is Demetrius and this is Helena, old Nedar's Helena. Remember Helena's father, Nidar? He gets mentioned a lot for someone not in the play. And Aegeus is exceptionally suspicious. He says, I wonder of their being here together. So this phrase, I wonder of, can mean either I'm amazed that they're all here together or something more specific like I wonder why and how they got to be here together. And Theseus has one possible explanation. He says, no doubt they rose up early to observe the rite of May and hearing our intent came here in grace of our solemnity so his theory is they rose up early in the morning because remember these people don't know that they escaped in the middle of the night so maybe they got up early to observe that rite of may that early morning fertility ritual and hearing our intent which here means our intention of coming here to observe that ritual too they came here in grace of our solemnity in grace here means something like in honor of our solemnity our solemnizing our celebration of that so like all rich important guys he thinks it's all about him They came here to honor us. And Theseus says, but speak, Aegeus. Is not this the day that Hermia should give answer of her choice? Yeah, this is the day she was supposed to announce her choice, whether she wanted to marry Demetrius or become a nun or, I guess, die. And Aegeus says, it is, my lord. And Theseus turns to one of his attendants and says, go, bid the huntsmen wake them with their horns. I feel like a simple poke would do, but sure. So the huntsman sounds off these horns. I don't know, maybe the dogs start barking too. Anyway, an unholy noise starts up and the four lovers wake up. And Theseus talks to them and says, "'Good morrow, friends.' In other words, good morning. St. Valentine has passed. In other words, St. Valentine's Day. And I think this is because according to legend, Valentine's Day was the day when all the birds got together and mated. Begin these wood birds, but to couple now. So are these wood birds, these birds who live in the woods, only beginning to couple, to pair up now? You were supposed to use Valentine's Day for this. Now it's what, June? So there's a little bit of joking from him there, calling them the wood birds. And Lysander is pretty mortified at this. He says, pardon my Lord. But Theseus interrupts him. He says, I pray you all stand up. I pray just means I ask you to stand up. And he needs to have his explanation now. He says, I know you two are rival enemies. Rival as in competing enemies. In this case, for the love of Hermia. How comes this gentle concord in the world that hatred is so far from jealousy to sleep by hate and fear no enmity? So how does this gentle concord, in other words, this peaceful harmony or agreement, comes? In other words, comes about or happens in the world that hatred is so far from jealousy, remember the hatred they had for each other, it's so far from jealousy, which here is something more like suspicion or mistrust, that it can sleep by hate, in other words, next to the person it hates, and fear no enmity, in other words, not worry about hostility or opposition. So how is it possible that two people who hate each other can sleep next to each other without worrying? And Lysander starts to speak before he knows what he's saying. He says, My lord, I shall reply amazedly, half sleep, half waking. Oh, this is a beautiful image. He says, I will reply amazedly, stunned or shocked. The image here is of someone stuck in a maze, not knowing where to go. And he says he's half asleep and half waking. You know that weird space in between, especially when you go to sleep at a time you didn't intend to and you wake up and you don't quite know where you are? It's what the academic folks like to call a liminal space, a space between two worlds. So he's still in that space when he starts speaking. And he says, but as yet, I swear, I cannot truly say how I came here. As yet, in other words, for now, at this time, I swear, I have no idea how I came to be here. And you can see his thinking evolving as he's speaking. In this next sentence, he says, but as I think for truly what I speak, and now I do bethink me, so it is, I came with Hermia hither. So as I think, this is sort of how it seems to me, for truly what I speak, in other words, I would like to speak truthfully or rightly, and in fact, now that I do bethink me, now that I actually consider to myself or reflect for myself, so it is. This is how it is. I came hither, in other words, to here with Hermia. Our intent was to be gone from Athens, where we might without the peril of the Athenian law. The peril of the Athenian law here means the danger of being punished by the Athenian law. And he never finishes because Aegeus interrupts him. This is too much. He was gonna say, get married probably. But Aegeus says, enough, enough. My Lord, you have enough. Like, that's all you need to know. I beg the law, the law upon his head. In other words, I ask for the punishment that the law prescribes. They would have stolen away. Stolen here means like secretly run away. He says, they would, Demetrius, thereby to have defeated you and me. Thereby, by those means, the means of running away, they would have defeated you and me. And defeated not in our modern sense, but more like deprived or cheated or frustrated you and me. He says, you of your wife and me of my consent, of my consent that she should be your wife. So they would have deprived you of your wife, in other words, Hermia, and deprived me of my consent, which is this father's right of agreeing to give her, of my consent that she should be your wife in the first place. His language is so interesting sounding here. It's just repetition all over the place. Enough, enough, my lord, you have enough. I beg the law, the law upon his head. They would have stolen away. They would, Demetrius, thereby to have defeated you and me, you of your wife and me of my consent, of my consent that she should be your wife. It's a guy who is freaking out. But I love how Shakespeare gives even minor characters these vocal ticks, so they sound only like themselves. He definitely sounds like an older guy and he sounds like a mad older guy. And then Demetrius has to step in. But remember, hugely important thing to remember about Demetrius at this point. He is still under the spell and he stays under the spell for the rest of his life. So his eyes are enchanted for his natural days from now on. And he steps in and says, My lord, fair Helen told me of their stealth, of this their purpose hither to this wood, and I in fury hither followed them, fair Helena in fancy following me. It just proves that trying to explain the plot of this play is nonsense. So he's trying to lay out that chain of what happened. So fair Helen told me of their stealth. Stealth here meaning their stealing away into the woods. Of this, their purpose hither to this wood. Their purpose, their intentions in going to here, to this wood. And I in fury hither followed them. I followed them here in fury fair Helena in fancy following me. Fancy again means like infatuation or love. That I believe is the alliteration to end all alliterations. It's five F's. Fury followed, fair, fancy following. So got that? That is the entire plot of the play. And then he goes into this really amazing sequence. He says, But my good Lord, I wot not by what power, but by some power it is, my love to Hermia, melted as the snow, seems to me now as the remembrance of an idle god, which in my childhood I did dote upon, and all the faith, the virtue of my heart, the object, and the pleasure of mine eye is only Helena. I wot not, which here means I know not, by what power? And then that parenthetical, but by some power it is. Yeah, it's probably by some power. So I have no idea what did it, but my love to Hermia, and then another parenthetical, melted as the snow, melted in the same way that snow melts on a sunny day. So my love seems to me now as the remembrance of an idle god. Idle means unimportant or trivial or useless, and god not G-O-D, G-A-U-D. It just means like a toy or a trinket, especially like a heavily decorated one. It's where we get the word gaudy from. So it just seems like this fancy, stupid toy, which in my childhood I did dote upon. There's that word dote again, meaning love deeply or kind of like idolize. So his love to Hermia seems like this stupid toy he used to love when he was a kid. But now he says, all the faith, in other words, loyalty or dedication, the virtue of my heart. Virtue here probably means something like essence or power of his heart. The object and the pleasure of mine eye. There's that word eye again. So the only thing I love to look on is only Helena. So he got rid of his childish love for Hermia. To her, my lord, was I betrothed ere I saw Hermia. So betrothed, he was engaged to her, ere I saw Hermia, before I even saw Hermia. There's seeing again. And then this really weird image. But like a sickness did I loathe this food. Like a sickness, as if I was sick, I did loathe this food. In other words, Helena. But as in health, come to my natural taste, now I do wish it, love it, long for it, and will forevermore be true to it. But as in health, as someone who is now healthy again, I'm come to my natural taste. I'm returned or come back to my natural ability to taste. You know, sometimes when you're sick, especially when your nose is stuffed up, food tastes different. Well, that's what it is now. He used to hate the food of Helena. But now that he's better again, he's healed, he can taste right. And he knows that Helena is good. And now he says, I do wish it. In other words, I wish for it. I love it. I long for it. And will forevermore be true to it. It's this nice list of the things he'll do. And this actually sounds a lot like the way that Lysander, when he was under the spell, was talking about Helena. It's a very similar language of someone growing up and recognizing what they want. Because remember, Demetrius is still under the spell. But it's such a weird way to talk about someone you're in love with. He compares her to food, and he ends up calling her it repeatedly. Even though the it here is the food, he's talking about Helena. I will forevermore be true to it. He will be true to his food. It's all very, very strange and a little off. And that resolves everything. Because now that he doesn't want to marry Hermia anymore, everyone's paired off. And Theseus decides that he's going to make it official. He says, fair lovers, you are fortunately met. Fortunately here means that they are met by good luck or fortune. Like we're lucky we came across you and we're able to resolve all this stuff. He says, of this discourse, we more will hear anon. Discourse being conversation or discussion. We will hear more anon, meaning soon. And he turns to Aegeus and says, Aegeus, I will overbear your will. For in the temple by and by with us, these couples shall eternally be knit. So I'll overbear, I'll overrule or override your will, what you want, your desire to see Lysander and Hermia punished. So Theseus has the power to overrule that. Why? For in the temple by and by, by and by meaning before long or even very soon, with us, in other words alongside us, these couples shall eternally be knit. Think of it as the way in which yarn is knit together where they're going to be combined, in this case in marriage. This is sort of a fulfillment of Oberon's prophecy from earlier in the scene where he was talking about how everyone was going to get married. Well, Theseus can solve this problem of consent because everybody's going to get married to the right person tomorrow night. And he says, and for the morning now is something worn. Our purpose hunting shall be set aside. For the morning, because the morning now is something worn, meaning somewhat spent or a little too much time has passed in the morning, our purposed hunting, the hunting that we intended to do, shall be set aside. So we're never going to get to hear the dogs? And we spent three whole minutes talking about their stupid faces? You're killing me, Shakespeare. So no hunting for them. Instead, he says, away with us to Athens. So everybody's going back to Athens. Three and three we will hold a feast in great solemnity. So three and three, three men and three women will hold a feast, a wedding feast in great solemnity, great celebration, like solemnizing. And he says, come, Hippolyta, and the whole train leaves. And that's the end of A Midsummer Night's Dream. Except it isn't. Because everything about the structure of this is how a Shakespeare play ends and how a play of this time ends. There's a nice rhyming couplet. The important people all leave the stage. We know how everybody's going to get together. Because remember, especially in the comedies, we rarely see the wedding at the end of the play. We just see someone saying, we're all going to get married, and they go off to get married. And also, every plot line is now tied up. The play started with this dispute from Aegeus, and now that's all resolved. They're finally going off to get married like they said they would. But the lovers stay on stage. And it may not seem like it, but the rest of this scene is radical. And it's weird. And it really fits with the overall themes of the play. So these lovers are still not quite totally awake. They're still sort of rubbing their eyes and looking around at each other. Did they dream Theseus and Hippolyta showing up too? And Demetrius, remember, who is the one still under the spell, is the first one to speak. He says... These things seem small and undistinguishable, like far-off mountains turn it into clouds. That is a wonderfully vague word choice. These things, maybe all the things that happen to us, they seem small and undistinguishable. Undistinguishable meaning something like hard to recognize, almost like objects at a distance are, and then this image like far-off mountains turn it into clouds, like when you see mountains in the distance and then you look again and you realize they were clouds all along. These are all ways that your eyes can trick you. This is transformation as a trick of the eye. So was all of this an illusion all along? And then Hermia pipes up. Remember, she didn't talk to her father or the Duke at all. She says, Methinks I see these things with parted eye when everything seems double. And she uses that phrase, these things too. It's kind of the only way to describe them, all these things that happened. Methinks, it seems to me, I see these things with parted eye hearted means like out of focus or divided almost like when you half close your eye when everything seems double so she's having double vision and helena jumps in to finish her verse line she says so methinks it seems the same way to me too and she goes on and i have found demetrius like a jewel mine own and not mine own almost as though she found him by accident lying on the ground because if you find the jewel on the ground well obviously it isn't yours but it's yours now So there's something kind of off about it. She almost feels like, again, she doesn't deserve him. Like he doesn't really belong to her, even though he just swore unending love to her. Helena is just never going to be happy with anything. And Demetrius finishes her line. He says, are you sure that we are awake? It seems to me that yet we sleep, we dream. That yet means still. He doesn't totally trust that they're awake. He thinks they're still asleep, that they're dreaming this all. Do not you think the duke was here and bid us follow him? He's putting the pieces back together of what he just saw. So am I the only one who dreamed that the duke was here and bid us follow him? In other words, asked or commanded us to follow him? And Hermia pipes up, yay, and my father. And Helena jumps on her line and says, and Hippolyta. And Lysander finishes that thought. He says, and he did bid us follow to the temple. So whereas Demetrius said he bid us follow him, Lysander fills in the information of he bid us follow him to the temple. And that's the confirmation Demetrius needs. He says, why then we are awake. Well, if we all remember it, it must be true. Let's follow him. And by the way, let us recount our dreams. That's the third follow we've heard, by the way. Bid us follow him, bid us follow to the temple. Let's follow him. And by the way, not in our modern sense, like, by the way, let's recount our dreams. Now here it means along the way, or as we go back to Athens, let us recount our dreams. Let's give an account of our dreams to each other and see if we can match them. They're still reconstructing what happened. These people are deeply lost. And you can hear it in their language. After those strong verse lines that Theseus had, that whole group clears out and they're all left alone and they speak in this very choppy language, cutting up their lines into little pieces, interrupting each other, almost as though they're one person speaking. They're still very much living in that no man's land between dreaming and waking. It's incredibly ballsy of Shakespeare to put this sequence in here. After the play is, for all intents and purposes, over, Because it's kind of hallucinogenic and strange and choppy. It's a scene about real people trying to figure out what's happened to them in the aftermath of this giant blow-up. And I would urge you, if you're putting on this play, to let it be as weird as it is, and as slow and quiet and different. And as they all kind of look at each other and try to figure out what happened, they walk off stage. But you may remember they are not the only people asleep on stage, because Bottom gets to wake up too. And until this point, Bottom has been the clown of the play and suddenly he's gonna get something that's a little more profound. In the same way the lovers got their waking up scene, now he's gonna get a little waking up scene of his own. And as he wakes up he says, When my cue comes, call me and I will answer. My next is most fair pyramus. So in his mind he's back before that donkey head was put on him, not back before he went to sleep. He goes right back to the moment where he was backstage in the Hawthorne break, and he's calling out to his fellows. He says, when my cue comes, call me and I will answer. My next, in other words, my next cue is most fair Paramus. This is what Flute was supposed to say to him to make him enter. And then he wakes up and he realizes he's alone in the woods. And he says, hey ho, Peter Quince, Flute the bellows mender, Snout the tinker, Starveling? He's calling out to all his friends. Well, everyone but Snug the Joiner. To shame Snug the Joyner gets left out. He's a nice guy. And there's no answer back from any of them. He says, God's my life which is a sort of generic expression. It may be short for something like, may God save my life. It's something you say when you're shocked. He says, stolen hence and left me asleep. Stolen hence as in they ran away from here. They snuck out of here and left me asleep. And as soon as he says the word asleep, it starts coming back to him what happened. He says, I have had a most rare vision. Rare, not in our modern sense, but meaning excellent or striking or special. I have this amazing vision, this amazing dream. I have had a dream past the wit of man to say what dream it was wit here means intelligence or wisdom or even mental ability so it's so far past man's ability that he can't even say what dream it was all he can say is man is but an ass if he go about to expound this dream okay shakespeare the donkey jokes are getting a little bit much so man is but an ass obviously it can mean donkey but it can also mean idiot so humans are just idiots there also may be a pun on his name here bottom ass So you're just an idiot if you go about to expound this dream. Go about means try or make an attempt to expound this dream, to explain the meaning of it. And he starts trying to piece it together. He says, Methought I was, there is no man can tell what. So methought, it seems to me that I was. Well, there's no one who can say what I thought I was. And then he starts up again. Methought I was, and methought I had. But man is but a patched fool if he will offer to say what methought I had. So he's going to say what he thought he had. In other words, a donkey's head. But he stops himself. He says, But man is but a patched fool. A patched fool is a jester who wears a patchwork costume, this pattern called motley. So you're nothing but a jester if you will offer to say, in other words, attempt or venture to say what me thought I had, what it seemed to me that I had. Again, he can't quite describe it. It's that weird feeling you have of waking up from a dream and remembering it so vividly and viscerally, but then you can't describe any of its details. He's straining so hard to bring it back, he says the eye of man hath not heard, the ear of man hath not seen, man's hand is not able to taste, his tongue to conceive, nor his heart to report what my dream was. And this is great because there's something weird and lovely about it. And at the same time, it fully fits in with the terrible way he speaks, this whole play, that kind of constant oxymorons and wrong words. So man's eye, there's that word eye again, hasn't heard, not something eyes generally do, man's ear hasn't seen not something ears generally do man's hand can't taste not something hands usually do his tongue to conceive conceive here means comprehend or understand not something tongues usually do nor his heart to report which means to say or deliver not something hearts usually do what my dream was So all of his senses become scrambled and mismatched, which actually is a lot of how you feel right when you wake up from a weird dream. Again, there's that weird hallucinogenic feeling about all of this that just matches the dream state perfectly. And he doesn't know how to capture it. And finally, he gets an idea. He says, I will get Peter Quince to write a ballad of this dream. A ballad is a verse song, something that usually tells a longer story. So he wants Quince to turn his dream into a song. It shall be called Bottom's Dream because it hath no bottom. So you would think it would be called bottom's dream because bottom had it, but no, he says it's because it hath no bottom. And bottom here has a lot of potential meanings, just like his name does. It can mean it has no end or no kind of comprehensible meaning, but it can also describe the thing he was named after, which is that spool of wool that a weaver uses. So if something has no bottom, it's all tangled up. Maybe that's why it's called bottom's dream. It's kind of a great little laugh line, And he has plans for this song already, even though, again, he doesn't remember anything about his dream. He says, and I will sing it in the latter end of a play before the duke. The latter end just meaning the final or last moment of a play before the duke, in front of the duke. So remember when we get there later, this is the song he wants to sing in front of the duke after the play is over. And he gets another even better idea. Per adventure, to make it the more gracious, I shall sing it at her death. Her adventure is a fancy way of saying perhaps or maybe, but it's an interesting over-the-top word choice. To make it the more gracious, in other words, to make it more lovely or delightful, I shall sing it at her death. The her here is probably thisbe, so he's planning to sing it when thisbe dies. Never mind that his character is already dead by this point. But it's a fantastically weird sentiment to end this speech on. And again, it would be so easy to write this as just a plain doofus speech. And there's plenty of doofus in there, don't get me wrong. But there's also this like weird profundity hanging all over it. It's his inability to say exactly what his dream was and this feeling that he used to be something important and that he's woken up from it. It's a lot like Christopher Sly, who's this poor drunk guy from the framing device in The Taming of the Shrew. And he passes out drunk, and they dress him up as a lord, and they do this play for him. And then at the end, he falls back asleep and wakes up, and he's a poor drunk again. It's that feeling of having been close to touching something amazing, and then waking up to realize, oh, I'm just what I used to be. Did any of this really happen? And Bottom seems to want to carry part of that with him. And again, the play could totally be over there. We pretty much know where this is going, but Shakespeare can't resist showing off. And so he keeps the play moving. Remember, it's been a very short play so far. He can get away with it. Because as we move into act four scene two, we find ourselves back with those mechanical guys, Quince and Flute and Snout and Starveling. And Peter Quince turns to the boys and says, have you sent to Bottom's house? In other words, have you sent a message to, have you sent word to Bottom's house? Is he come home yet? They're he's still out in the woods. And Starveling answers, he cannot be heard of. In other words, he hasn't been heard from yet. Out of doubt, he is transported. Out of doubt meaning beyond a doubt. He is transported, which could mean carried off, as if by spirits. But there's something close to that word translated or transformed, too. And Flute is despondent. He says, if he come not, then the play is marred. Marred meaning ruined. It goes not forward, doth it? Like the play can't go on without him. And Quint says, it is not possible. You have not a man in all Athens able to discharge Pyramus, but he. Discharge means perform, or in this case, like, pull off. Like, he was the only one in Athens who could act this part. Eh, Maybe not really, but sure. And Flute says, no. He hath simply the best wit of any handicraftman in Athens, which is kind of a sweet joke. He has the best wit, in other words, the best intelligence or brains, at least of any handicraftman, like craftsman or person who works with their hands. Like of all the people who are terrible at acting, he's the best at acting. And Quince replies, "Yea, and the best person, too. And he's a very paramour for a sweet voice. The best person is like his figure. It can be his personality, but there's something about physical appearance. And then he says... He's a very paramour for a sweet voice. A paramour is literally a lover, especially an illicit one. He means to say paragon, which Flute is about to call him on. But like all the mechanicals, he's always switching his words around. For a sweet voice. For having a sweet voice. And Flute jumps on him and says, you must say paragon. A paramour is, God bless us, a thing of naught. Naught means sinfulness, as in our word naughty. So a paramour, a mistress, isn't something we should talk about. What you meant to say is he has the best voice. He's a paragon for a sweet voice. And in comes snug with important news. He says, masters, the duke is coming from the temple. And there is two or three lords and ladies more married. So they all went to get married at the temple. And now they're returning. And he's also breaking the news to them that there are more couples married. Presumably the lovers. And why is this a problem? Because he says, if our sport had gone forward we had all been made men so if our sport our entertainment had gone forward we had all been made men in other words our fortunes would have been made because we would have gotten a pension for performing at the wedding and flute is crushed he says oh sweet bully bottom They use this adjective to describe him a lot. Bully as in like a fine fellow. Thus that he lost six pence a day during his life. So because he didn't show up, he's lost this possible pension of six pence a day, six pennies a day during his life. In other words, every day for the rest of his life, he would have gotten six pence from the Duke. That's a big deal. He could not have escaped six pence a day. Escape being short for escaped, but he wouldn't have failed to get six pence a day. That's the minimum he would have gotten. And Flute keeps going. And the Duke had not given him six pence a day for playing Pyramus. I'll be hanged. And here means if. Flute is that sure that the Duke would have given him sixpence a day for playing Pyramus. And on top of that, Flute says, He would have deserved it. sixpence a day in Pyramus or nothing. So he would have gotten six pence for playing Pyramus or nothing. As in, or I'm totally wrong. He must have gotten it. But lucky for them, just at that moment, who comes in? It's Bottom and he shouts, Where are these lads? Where are these hearts? Hearts here means good-hearted or big-hearted people. As in me hearties. And they are all overjoyed to see him. Quince shouts... Bottom, almost courageous day. Courageous is a sort of weird word choice. It just means excellent or splendid. Like this is a wonderful day, almost happy hour. He's not talking about cheaper drinks. Remember, happy means fortunate, like this is our lucky moment. He arrived right on time, and Bottom has news of his own. He says, Masters, I am to discourse wonders. I am to means I have to or I'm about to discourse, tell you wonders. Maybe he's going to describe that dream. And then he says, but ask me not what? For if I tell you, I am not true Athenian. So he says, I'm going to tell you something amazing, but don't ask me what it is. If I were to tell you, that would make me not a true Athenian, like it would be dishonorable. But then he can't stop himself. He says, I will tell you everything right as it fell out. In other words, I'm going to tell it to you exactly or precisely as it happened, as it fell out. So first he was going to tell them, then he was going to not tell them, now he's going to tell them again. And Quint says, let us hear, sweet Bottom. And then he waffles again. Bottom says, not a word for me. In other words, not a word from me. So maybe he finally chickens out about telling them his dream, which he still has not said aloud. So what he says to them is, all that I will tell you is that the Duke hath dined. That's a pretty vague statement. But here it means he's finished his dinner, which means that he's ready for entertainment, i.e. their play. And you get that fun alliteration of duke and dined. And that's their cue to go. He says, get your apparel together, good strings to your beards, new ribbons to your pumps. So get your apparel, get your clothes or your costumes together, good strings to your beards, you know, the strings that hold on the fake beards. Remember their extended discussion of beard color earlier? New ribbons to your pumps, new ribbons for your pumps, which are dancing shoes. Meet presently at the palace. Presently, not in our modern sense of eventually, but here it means immediately, at once. Meet me at the palace. And there's something really triumphant about those double P sounds. Presently in palace. Every man look o'er his part. Remember that bit about the part scripts? How you get all your lines and then your cues? Well, he's saying everyone should get their cued part scripts and look them over and make sure they know their lines. And why all these preparations? For the short and the long is? Our play is preferred. Preferred means recommended or chosen. And again, you have those hard P sounds. Our play is preferred. It's all very triumphant. Important question, how does he know their play is preferred? Maybe they just show up? I have no idea. But this is information he would not necessarily be privy to. And he goes on, in any case, let Thisbe have clean linen, and let not him that place the lion pair his nails, for they shall hang out for the lion's claws. So as they're all ready to run off, he adds just a few details. Let Thisbe have clean linen, presumably for her dress? And let not him that plays the lion pair his nails, which means to clip or cut his nails. Why? For they shall hang out for the lion's claws. They'll hang out of his costume as the claws of the lion. Although it's probably a little late to grow your nails long. And now they're ready to go off again, but he stops them again and he says, And most dear actors, eat no onions or garlic, for we are to utter sweet breath. And I do not doubt but to hear them say it is a sweet comedy. Yeah, make sure not to eat onions or garlic, for we are to utter sweet breath. And utter can mean emit, as in sweet-smelling breath. Or here it probably means something more like speak sweet words. So it's a nice pun. And I do not doubt but, which is kind of a triple negative, but it means I expect to hear them say it is a sweet comedy. Although again, Pyramus and Thisbe, not a comedy. It does not end with a happy marriage. So every time they get ready to go out and run off to get everything ready, he keeps stopping them with these little bits of advice. That's bottom. He can never stop talking. And they're waiting again. And he says, no more words. Away. Go away. Away. So finally, at long last, they're running off to put on their play. And now we know what Act 5 is going to be. That's the end of Part 5 of Clear Shakespeare Midsummer. Come back for Part 6, the final part, and we're going to talk all about what it's doing in the play in the first place, how Shakespeare gets away with something so brazen, and whether it's actually funny. I hope you're enjoying the podcast. If you are, please take a moment to go to clearshakespeare.com and kick in a few bucks to make all of this possible. Also, I'd appreciate it if you could subscribe to this podcast via iTunes, and if you really like it, please leave a good review. Thanks. Bye.